he gave them to his mom and let her show them to people for 25 cents. And that's the going rate, because P.T. Barnum, who has a mummy, is allowing people to see it for 25 cents. So that's sort of the going rate at the time. And it's a way of providing her with an income. And she kept doing this after Joseph Smith died. Well, she's got these mummies and these papyri that she's exhibiting in the house, and she dies. And Emma Smith, I think, is sick of having dead bodies laying around the house. So less than two weeks after Mother Smith dies, Emma sells the lot. Well, I think when we think of sarcophagi, we think of the beautiful and Yeah, we do great things, but they didn't have the sarcophagi. They just had the mummies. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hi, I'm here today with John Gee. Tell me what you do, John. I am an Egyptologist, and I'm a research professor at Brigham Young University, so I do a lot of research. And sometimes they let me teach a class. What kind of research do you do? I have two hats. One of them, I do research on the ancient world and Egyptology, and uh, the other hat is research on ancient scripture, Bible, Mormon, Pearl of Great Price. Also here is Amanda Brown. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Amanda. Hi, I am a master's student at Hebrew University at Jerusalem, studying Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East, and it's great. Well, we're going to ask you some questions about what else, the Book of Abraham. Five years ago, I thought the Book of Abraham was a book written by Abraham, translated from some papyri that Joseph Smith happened to be able to purchase in 1835. Since that time, my thoughts on the Book of Abraham have changed. Now, how many years have you studied the Book of Abraham? Sort of in a professional scholarly way. Yes. Um, it's been about 31 now. Okay, so 31 years you've studied the Book of Abraham. Tell me what the Book of Abraham is to you. Okay, well, actually, your basic outline of what you understood five years ago is, is more or less correct. There are some papyri that they purchased from a man named Michael Chandler. We're not really that sure where he got them from. We've been able to trace the papyri. We haven't been able to trace Chandler's association with it back maybe more than a month from before Joseph Smith bought them from him. When he sold the papyri, he told a story to Joseph Smith about the papyri, about where they came from, where they got them. And... In checking details on that story, several people have tried to check the... uh, He said, for example, Chandler said that he was the nephew of Antonio Labelo who dug up the papyri. Well, they've done the genealogical research, and he's not Labelo's nephew. I think what you have in the church history about where the papyri come from is their best understanding of what Chandler reported to them. And Chandler, in some cases, made things up. In some cases, it may be that they misunderstood what he said. Some of it appears to be garbled. Some of it appears to be fabricated. Now, it isn't unusual for antiquities dealers to not tell the whole truth. Oh, well, not only to not tell the whole truth, it's often 
it's not unusual for them to simply fabricate claims. Buying antiquities on the antiquities market is notorious for problems. So far, I've had only two objects that have been brought to me to ask for an evaluation that weren't forgeries or weren't obvious forgeries. They may still be forgeries, the other two, but they're at least not blatant forgeries. They report in the history of the church the best that they have, and there was a mistake when they printed the history of the church. Somebody misread the cursive capital L as a capital S, and so they garbled the excavator's name. This sort of mistake happens, and you try to work on correcting them. It's not clear now that Labelo, while he was involved with the papyri, it's not clear that he was the one who excavated them. It's fairly clear now that he didn't own them. Joseph Smith gets these papyri, and he gets this collection of papyri. And we used to think it was five, now it's, we think it's four. It's a little bit unclear. We, can, we have fragments of two different papyri that survive, but we know that he had a lot more than that. He translates these documents, but we don't know that the Book of Abraham was finished translation. The last published thing that Joseph Smith published said to be continued, but it never was. So this is a record of Abraham, we can test it by looking at how it matches documents from Abraham's day to see how good it is for Abraham's fit. And this is something they couldn't do in Joseph Smith's day because most of the languages and the material has been either dug up and deciphered since Joseph Smith's death. So in the early 1800s, these papyri are excavated. They make their way to Kirtland. The prophet buys them in 1835 35. for about $2,400. Yes. And, and he doesn't do anything with them. He says these are the words of Abraham and Joseph. And then when he goes to Nauvoo in 1844, nope, 1842. 18, he published them in 1842. Two. So let me yeah. fill in a little bit. Okay. Um, so he translates a little bit of it in July of 1835, and there's another translation session that goes in October, may stretch into November. And then Oliver Cowdery comes back from a trip, and he has a Hebrew grammar and a Hebrew dictionary and, and a Greek, uh, some Greek materials as well. And Joseph Smith picks up the Hebrew, and within a week of getting these Hebrew books— He's studying Hebrew and no longer working on the Egyptian. And the Hebrew just sucks up all of his time. Amanda, you know something about that. So much about that. (laughs) So he starts translating that, and we have no record of him doing anything with the Book of Abraham until late 1841 when he starts preparing it for publication. And they published it in installments in the Times and Seasons, and they got... The first installment has about two chapters and one of the facsimiles. The second installment has the rest of what we have in the published book of Abraham and facsimile two. And the third installment has facsimile three, but no text. Then we don't have any of the others. And just as frustrating, we have some manuscripts. People would copy the translation of the book of Abraham in one person did his journal and they'd visit Joseph Smith and they'd copy down part of it, but not all of it. And so we have 
about five different manuscripts. But if you put them all together, you don't actually have all of the Book of Abraham that we have in the published edition. So we don't have manuscripts for half of it. And then we don't have all of what was there, and we don't have all that he necessarily all that we translated. And all of our manuscripts, most of our manuscripts, they come from William Appleby, they come from W.W. Phelps. Only one of them was in the possession of Joseph Smith, and it isn't complete. So we don't know what happened to the manuscripts. And we, I have lots of great speculation, but it's speculation, so we'll just leave that aside. That is fascinating to me. I have never heard that before. I know that it was first printed in Great Britain. No, it was, well, it was first printed in the Times and Seasons in 1842. Then it was gathered in in 1851, I think, in the Times, not in the the Pearl of Great Price. So what Franklin Richards did, so he's, he's the youngest apostle, and he's the president of the European mission headquartered in England. And England actually at that time had more church members than anywhere else in the world. But they had almost no church literature. So he gathered up all of these revelations that he could get a hold of from the prophet Joseph Smith. They include the book of Abraham, the translation Joseph Smith Matthew. So it had Joseph Smith's precision. So all of this stuff that's now in the Pearl of Great Price, plus a few other things that were weeded out, like it had the hymn, Oh, Say What is Truth, and and he put them together, and he called it the Pearl of Great Price. And he, it wasn't a tract. It was for the saints who had already, already believed. So he published this in 1851, and then it's published again in America in, I can't remember if it's 1879 or 1880, but it was canonized in 1880. So you had all these British saints who had access to it, and all these American saints who didn't in the meantime. When they canonized it in 1880, then the church members had it. And there are funny things that you get with that. So the doctrine of the preexistence is most clearly laid out in Abraham 3. And so that's our best account of it. Now, it's mentioned in other scriptures, but uh, nowhere near as clear a picture. Very few other scriptures actually put us into the picture the way that Abraham 3 does. So Joseph Smith, if you look through his Nauvoo Discourses, he's teaching the preexistence, and he'll quote language from the Book of Abraham, and he'll, in one case, refers back, says he got this doctrine from translating a papyrus that's in his house. Now, I have a question. Is he referring to this before or after 1842 when it's been published? That's fascinating. Both. Um, But especially after it's been published. But if you look at discourses on the preexistence that were done in the 1850s and 1860s in Utah, they all say, well, we teach this because Joseph Smith taught it. And they don't know where it comes from. And it isn't until around the 1890s that people finally start connecting up with this newly canonized Book of Abraham and connecting up that doctrine and then moves forward from there. But for many, many years, decades, they only taught it because that's what they'd heard Joseph Smith teach it. But if you go back and look at the, the records from Joseph Smith's days, he's getting it from the Book of Abraham. And so for about 50 years, we had this doctrine that was based on scriptures, but we didn't know that it was based on scriptures. I think a lot of the discourse and distress over the last 10 years about the topic has to deal with provenance. And 
you have brought up two issues. Usually we refer to the fragments in our possession that we got in 1967 that don't match the contents of the Book of Abraham. But also you're saying we don't know where some of the manuscripts are that yeah, make up right. the contents. So let's talk about those two issues and the theories out there on where we got this book. Okay, so, well, now, now you've actually raised a, a third issue, but you probably didn't recognize it. Which one of those do I want to take first? What happened to the papyri is that toward the end of Joseph Smith's life, his father had died, his mother was a widow, she was living with them in the house. And people would come and visit, and they'd want to see things like the papyri. So he set up this system where he gave them to his mom and let her show them to people for 25 cents. And that's the going rate, because P.T. Barnum, who has a mummy, is allowing people to see it for 25 cents. So that's sort of the going rate at the time. And it's a way of providing her with an income. And she kept doing this after Joseph Smith died. Well, she's got these mummies and these papyri that she's exhibiting in the house, and she dies. And Emma Smith, I think, is sick of having dead bodies laying around the house. So less than two weeks after Mother Smith dies, Emma sells the lot. Well, I think when we think of sarcophagi, we think of the beautiful engraved yeah, things. But they didn't have the sarcophagi. They just had the mummies. Um, mummies are ugly. I've seen Tutankhamun. Uh, yeah, that, mummies can't. Well, if you unwrap them, they're they're even less beautiful. They tend to be even less beautiful unless you're one of these anatomy people and for whom the human body is a beautiful thing. Okay, so you get a lot of different reactions to artwork and even Egyptian artwork. And I've seen the gamut, people who love the mummies and then people who for whom that's just creepy. So I'm going to charitably assume that Emma just thought these are creepy. So less than two weeks later, she sells them to a traveling salesman, Abel Combs, and he takes it and he splits the collection up. Some of the material he sells to the St. Louis Museum who then sells it to the Woods Museum, which was based in St. Louis, and then Woods decides he might be able to get a little more money if he took his museum and moved it to Chicago, so he does. The only problem with Chicago was that it was mostly built of wood, not anymore, it's against building code, has been since 1871 when most of the town burned down in the Great Chicago Fire, including Woods Museum. And for a long time, they, they'd traced them there and said, okay, they're destroyed. But they didn't know that he'd split the collection up, and he kept a number of pieces, and they were mounted under glass. They'd been mounted in 1837, maybe give or take a year, but probably 1837. And he kept them, and they passed through various hands, and some of this looks like it has some really interesting intrigue, but we'll leave that aside. And then they finally get offered to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1917. The Met takes one look at them, knows what they are, and said, we don't want them. Okay, sea change. 20 years later, you have this curator in, no, it's 30 years later. 30 years later, you have this curator who's retiring, who's heard about these and decides to acquire them for the Met. And he acquires them and then retires the next year. In 1966, 
Aziz Atiyah, who is a, a Copt, so he's a Coptic Christian, and he's a professor at the University of Utah, is back doing research in those collections. And he notifies the museum he's coming, and they said, yeah, you can come and look through our Coptic collections, and we have some stuff we'd like to show you. So when he's there, they show them the papyri and said, do you think the Mormons would want these? And he says, I don't know. I'll try to find out. So he comes back to Utah. And, I mean, he knows some Mormons, but he doesn't know any church leaders. So it takes takes him a little while to contact the church leaders. And then they're interested, and they contact the Met. And the Met begins the deacquisition process. And this is a fairly new thing that they've done at the museum. It was instituted by the director who said, you know, we have all this stuff, but not all of it is worth seeing. So he arranged to have a a deacquisition process. Otherwise, you know, museums would acquire and that would be it, dead end. So they put it through the the acquisition process. This has to be one of the first objects they ever deacquisitioned. And it takes about a year. And so they end up presenting them to the church over... Thanksgiving weekend in 1967, and, and President Elder and Tanner brings them back to Utah. The church immediately said, yes, we've got these papyri. Well, that was the first that most people had ever heard of them, which means that the papyri have been in church archives longer than they've been anywhere since they were dug up. So that's one issue, so where, where the various fragments were. If we look through the 19th century eyewitness statements, they describe mounted fragments and these rolls that they have. And whenever they're talking about the Book of Abraham, they always say it came, comes from one of the rolls, and this is even when they've got the fragments. We have the mounted fragments, not the rolls. And the Book of Abraham was supposed to be on the rolls, not the fragments. So when we look at the fragments and we see, yeah, they don't contain the Book of Abraham, they contain the Book of the Dead and a document of breathings made by Isis, And that's not the Book of Abraham. But if we look at the 19th century eyewitnesses, this is the material that doesn't have the Book of Abraham on it. So the fact that we can translate this and say, yes, this doesn't contain the Book of Abraham, that just confirms what the 19th century eyewitnesses said. The Book of Abraham is on the rolls, not the fragments. We have the fragments, not the rolls. So that's part of the provenance issue. That's one of them. So then you have various theories about how Joseph Smith where he got the Book of Abraham from. There are some people who think that Joseph Smith got it from the fragments. As far as I can tell, that's a minority viewpoint, even in the church. There are some people who think he got it from direct revelation, and there was no text of the Book of Abraham on on any of the papyri. And then there are others who say that it was on the papyri, just not the papyri we have. It just wasn't on the fragments. You know, the people who thought he got it from direct revelation can point to Warren Parrish's statement that he made in eighteen in the 1830s that he wrote down the book of Abraham as Jesus received it from direct inspiration from heaven. But that's the method. So you can read that two ways, that he got the translation from wherever it is or that he got the translation from heaven. So if you're going to say it's not on the fragments, you go with that statement. But there are other statements by Joseph Smith saying that he got the doctrine of the preexistence from translating papyri that he had in his house. Well, that makes it a little more difficult to say this is from inspiration. But those are some of the theories that people have. Okay, so the provenance having to do 
with the scrolls is twofold, I think. The scrolls, we don't think were written in the days of Abraham, do we? No, but one of the documents on the scrolls that we know is on the scrolls because it's there is a copy of a document that actually goes back before Abraham's day because we have manuscripts that date before Abraham's day that have that same text. So you have dates of a manuscript and date of a text. And let's use this use the example of Paul's letters. One of Paul's letters, he says, see what a long letter I've written with my own hand. So there's the original and he wrote that letter. But then that letter was copied. And so the earliest copy we have of that letter, I think, is 3rd century. So that's 200 years after Paul. And there are lots of texts that get copied. And that's how you, you, know, you didn't publish a book. You copied it. And so there's the date you make the copy, the date of the manuscript, and then the date the text was originally written. And those are two different dates. So the date of the papyri, most of the papyri looks like they're about 2nd century BC. And there are disagreements. Some of the, some Egyptologists want to make that, some of the papyri 2nd century AD, some of them want to make it first. I go with the earlier date because I think there's more evidence behind that. We know those Book of the Dead texts, in many cases, date at least a thousand years, in some cases 2,000 years before they're copied down. And yet we have these texts, and they some of them are dated before Abraham, and some of them dated to about the time of Moses, and here they are in this manuscript that comes from the second century BC. So the idea that you could have a really old text in a copy like that is just more or less standard in, from people who actually work with the documents. Is there's the date of the manuscript and the date of the text. And so it's not a necessarily a problem for Abraham to, for a text of Abraham to be in a manuscript that late. Does the later date of the manuscript change how we should read the book of Abraham today at all? Well, so there's the theory of how does a text from Abraham end up in Egypt in Thebes in the Ptolemaic period. And so there you can, and here we're mainly hypothetical. So there are a lot of different hypotheses about how the text could get transmitted there. One of them is that Abraham writes down his memoirs when he's in Egypt and then they get transferred for the Egyptians. I prefer the idea that he wrote it and it was transmitted to his descendants. And then we know that a number of the of Jews migrated to Egypt. You have a clear example of Jeremiah actually talks about being taken to Egypt along with a number of other Jews. And we find records. You have Jewish temple at Elephantini in the Persian period and one in Leontopolis in the Ptolemaic period. You have Jewish settlements all over Egypt. This is fairly well documented. They could have kept it among themselves and then brought it with them to Egypt. We have Greek authors who, one of them, Hecateus of Abdera, wrote an account of things that he learned from Egyptian priests about Abraham. Unfortunately, that while we know the story behind the text, the text itself doesn't survive. So we have some indications of the texts about Abraham were circulating in Egypt around the time period of the papyri. It's a possible explanation, but again, it's a little bit short of proof. I have heard this idea from skeptics. You tell me what you think of it. So you've said that it could be just a copy of a copy of a copy, which they did, which is 
common. Could it be pseudepigrapha? And explain to our listeners what oh. that is. Okay, so the, there's another idea that's out there that the Book of Abraham is written by, say, some later Jew in Egypt or goes down into Egypt, and it's not actually written by Abraham. It's written by somebody in his name. It's just, as it were, an ancient historical novel, something like that. One I haven't read, but I've heard about it, you know, saying that Abraham Lincoln is a vampire slayer or something like that. There's this novel out there, I guess, that claims this. Now, that's historical fiction. It's taking a known historical person and writing a really fanciful account about them. That's an idea that's been kicked around. I have some problems with that because people who write historical novels tend to give away that they're not actually from the time period when the novel is taking place. They make mistakes in reconstructing that event. There are a number of things that you find in the Book of Abraham that are dead on for Abraham's day and not for a later time period. So the human sacrifice element shows up in Abraham and is best attested in Abraham's day. So around Abraham's day, we have archaeological evidence for that practice. We have prescriptive texts that say if one of them is if, if somebody wanders into this area, unless it's a priest about his duties, he will be burned to death. So that we actually have a, an Egyptian stele that says that. We have some historical accounts of them actually doing it. So we have all of those things, and that's all from Abraham's day. We don't have any archaeological evidence of that from the time period of the papyri. We do have a full account of the ritual from that time period. We have two of them, actually. And they both date from around the time within a hundred years or so of the papyri. There are a number of other indications that seem to to fit better with Abraham's day, and so I have a hard time seeing how an, a pseudepigraphic text would explain those. And I also have a, a sort of problem: if you're going to have a pseudepigraphic text, why does God want to reveal a pseudepigraphic text to Joseph Smith? He doesn't need to do a pseudepigraphic text. He can just give them a direct revelation like you have in the Doctrine and Covenants. If there's something important about preexistence or covenants, why not reveal it that way? But that's not how it's done. And so I don't see that um, having that revealing a, uh, a false text is necessarily, you know, I guess I, I just don't see that working. In five sentences or less, can you describe to me the Book of Abraham controversy and where you presently find yourself? There are three historical time periods that deal with the Book of Abraham. So there's the historical time period of Abraham, historical time period of the papyri, and the historical time period of Joseph Smith to the present. I work in all three of those areas. A lot of the problem with the controversies uh, has to do with focusing on only one of those areas, usually the 19th century. People who deal with the 19th century and don't work with antiquity have problems dealing with ancient materials. They don't, usually don't have the training or the inclination to work with them. And so if all you work in the 19th century, it's hard to find ancient precedents because all you can find are, it's, you're just looking in 19th century. Probably the most important time period is to look at Abraham's day and to focus on from the 
five chapters we have in the book of a- of the book of Abraham. What does Abraham's day tell us about that? And I'm finding there's a lot of interesting material that indicates the book of Abraham comes out of that milieu and not the other two. Doctrinally, what do you find most important in the book of Abraham besides talking about the pre-existence? Well, the pre-existence is the big one, Mm -hmm. okay? That's half your general conference citations of Abraham come from that, those few verses, and a third of the material we use in the church. Yes, there is more in the book of Abraham that could show up and from, say, a doctrinal point of view that it could be used for. But the the material that we have, the preexistence is probably the most important. Uh, Abraham's covenants come in second, and I think that's uh, appropriate. There are some things that I think we missed. If you look through the book of Abraham, there's this theme about obedience that runs through the whole book. Even in doing the creation, it's not whether, you know, God doesn't look and see whether it's good. He looks and whether it's obeying. And that's a theme that can be developed that comes out of the text. It even figures into the preexistence parts. We'll prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. So the purpose of life is tied into that obedience theme, and it runs all the way through. And I've only touched on some of the passages. We could probably do more than that, but I think the church has the appropriate doctrinal emphasis in the most important place. As you can tell, we have just scratched the surface. You've studied 31 years. Do you think you're close to being done studying it? Uh, No. (laughs) Um, uh, No, I don't. There's a whole lot more of the research that I'm still trying to get out, and then there are other areas that I haven't even got to yet. So I'm not done yet. So it's rich for study. It is. The one one thing I have to be careful with is it's easy to have your gospel hobby horse. So this is the thing you're good at, and this is the thing you do. And so I do a lot with Book of Abraham, but the gospel is so, and the scriptures we have are so much richer than just the Book of Abraham. And while it's important to do work on the Book of Abraham, I think it's also important not to neglect the richness that's in the rest of the scriptures and revelations that we've been given and not to make it a hobby horse. With that wonderful thought, we'll conclude. Thank you. Thank you very much. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. You would think that when you would talk to most anybody with a near-death experience and take it for what it is. But like you said, you can see how some people, perhaps even in our religion and others, but primarily in our religion, that we focus so much on life after death and where we came from and where we're going, that they may take that experience over doctrine or over what the prophet says or over other things. And that's fairly dangerous. And that was exactly the reason why we addressed it the way we did. And still to this day, we have that problem. People take experiences as the doctrine as opposed to the scriptures or official prophetic statements. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. 
an LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.